You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. All right, it is time to get into it with our Monday guests, uh, one of our regular Andrews. Sometimes joining for a Super Andrew Monday is Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. Good morning, Andrew. Welcome back. Good morning. And uh, I can't say first, second, or maybe even third, fourth. We're, we're starting to lose count because she's getting to be a Money Talk regular. Welcome back, Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. Morning. Great to have you both on. Um, quickly, because I want to get it out of the way, it's the top of all the news stories, Blinken's visit to China, but does it have any business implications? I mean, the VIX is at an all-time low, it seems, you know, for, over the last little while. Uh, it seems like there's very little risk priced in the market. I mean, is, is this going to have a business impact? Catherine, kick us off. I don't think it'll have a business impact per se, but I think it's important because geopolitics is really at the forefront of many investors' minds and somewhat overshadowing a lot of the fundamentals of companies. So, you know, going forward, and even if we look over the past several, several years, the competitiveness between the US and China, it does have an impact in terms of sometimes, you know, seeing market volatility, something we need to be cognizant about, but obviously a positive relationship between these two superpowers is, is very important. Okay. Uh, Andrew, I said the VIX was at an all-time low. It's not at, a, it's not at an all-time low, but it is pretty low right now. I mean, are people, what, are, what are people expecting on that front? Well, I think hopefully they're looking for uh, some of normalization of uh, at least the countries talking together. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a, this policy of uh, China feels that it's being constricted uh, and having to retaliate. Uh, and America feels it's safeguarding its own interests. But it's, you know, it makes it very difficult for companies that uh, uh, interact with both nations to, to trade. And uh, so people will be looking for that to be at least normalized or trying to get back to normal. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I guess China's kind of feeling the hit right now. The, uh, the domestic consumption front was supposed to save it. it it hasn't. Uh, inbound investment's been weak. Uh, Americans are, are spending money on services, not goods. Um, I mean, I, let's start with Chinese consumption. Where do you know what's going on? Why, why are things falling down so badly on that front? Well, I think you've obviously got the, the, the recovery from COVID, uh, and, but more importantly, probably, is the, the impact of the housing market and the lack of confidence there. Because obviously, if people aren't buying flats, then they're not buying things to go into flats. So the hope for you know, a domestic economy, a domestic recovery, domestic spending has been rather curtailed by that. Uh, and, and the fact that China hasn't really addressed the problem. I mean, we're still waiting for Evergrande's uh, recovery program. Yeah, I mean, Catherine, uh, JD.com, Tmall, Taobao, they were all kind of talking down the prospects of, of 618, which is supposed to be a big retail week, big online retail week, but it, it just ain't happening. Yeah, so both JD and Ali don't disclose final numbers, um, but they did put a positive message on it in terms of speedy deliveries, the extent of different brands. You know, when we speak to the consumer-related companies or the management teams there, they're, they're talking about how consumers want value at a low price. So we're probably going to see some lower margins as you see these players really try and increase their market share through discounting. But just in terms of that consumer, I think what's really important to remember is that the Chinese households have the ability to spend Unlike a lot of other households around the world, they're not indebted. It's just that willingness. So that confidence needs to come back in. And I think, to be really honest with you, there were way too many expectations at the end of last year about a V-shaped recovery, and it, it just hasn't played through. And and I, I, I mean, think uh, also, if you, if you bear in mind the unemployment, mm. I mean, all those jobs that were in the tutoring sector, the e-commerce sector, the youth unemployment at 20%, those are all people that aren't going to be spending at the moment. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. So th- this is a great point. Is this, so what, what is driving that consumer confidence? As you're saying, some of them do have it. Um, Andrew, you're saying, is, is it linked to their, their confidence related to their job prospects? Is it related to how they feel about the, the property that they own? Uh, I mean, in Hong Kong, you know, it, it seems like consumer spending goes up and down with the stock market. What is it in China? What, what, is, what is driving that confidence either up or down? Well, I think it, it is just that confidence. I mean, if you have a job and you've got, you feel secure, then you're likely to spend. But I think there's also the fact that you have to look at the different tiers within China. I mean, the rich have got slightly richer because they weren't able to spend money on traveling overseas and other things like that. Whereas a lot of the poorer um, sections of society, you know, there's no free health care in, in, in China. So if they were ill, they had to pay for that. They probably saw some of their hourly wages drop or not getting paid some of those jobs that were were curtailed by covid you know so there's there's sort of two tiers really within china and i think you've got to take that into account yeah they're feeling a little fragile so they're, they're banking it Catherine, are you aligned with that story or is there another dimension you want to add to that i think it's a mixed bag so even province by province you see different levels of confidence and what we're now seeing emerge is that the low tier like the prices there are seeing a recovery luxury brands are starting to see a recovery it's quite murky in the mid-tier section so you know again i think it's this sort of waiting to see patients i don't think the government are going to issue like broad-based consumption vouchers one is the population is too big but two they probably want to just maintain and, and see the recovery but maybe local governments will start doing subsidies just like local governments are now in charge in terms of property policy Mm. I mean, how many levers do they have to kind of juice the economy? I mean, they're try, you know they're, they're making kind of this kind of half-hearted rate, you know, uh, rate cuts. Uh, but I don't see that as being a strong driver. I mean, what else can the Chinese government do to kind of ins- either inspire confidence or, or you know bring bring a little more prosperity back to the table? I think this is the problem. Like investors are just too greedy these days. We want to see the stimulus that we saw in 08, 09, and that had repercussions for China in terms of the level of debt. So I think the recoveries we saw in 2003, 09, 2016, we shouldn't expect that kind of recovery. And don't forget, the biggest bears on China were always very critical of the growth model. And the Chinese government has now changed that growth model to make it more sustainable. And I think, again, very importantly, the PBOC is in a position where they can tweak and ease, unlike other central banks. Bankers, but it's all about tweaking, not about big bang stimulus. Yeah, Andrew? Well, I think so. I mean, and, and, and as Catherine says, you know, the fact is that they've spent a lot of money on infrastructure. They've built the roads, they've built the bridges, they've built the railways. There's not that much more that they can build that's going to add any value. And I think that's the other thing. The government doesn't want to be seen to build building bridges to nowhere. It has to have a real long-term game. And that's why they tried to move the money out of property and towards high-tech and added value. Um, they just got caught out by the fact that the developers was, were too stretched at that point. I mean, in terms of foreign investment, do you think people are keeping away because they just they see danger in the property market, uh, the Chinese consumer is not there, or is it because they've just you know, things are more attractive elsewhere. Maybe they'll turn their eyes back to China if China starts to pick up a bit. I mean, because right now the U.S., I mean, if, 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 you were, if you were missing, if you were light on the U.S. markets, you'd really be missing out. Well, I think the other thing is that, yes, I mean, for years when U.S. interest rates were at zero, then people were looking for yield elsewhere and China was very attractive. But if you can get 4% on, you know, government bonds in the U.S., you're not so keen to look overseas. And especially seeing the policy changes happened overnight that burnt a lot of people on e-commerce, on Macau, on the tutoring services. It, it, it highlights the, the political risk in China. Mm-hmm. Kath? 
I think that um, it'll be interesting to see over the years this sort of argument about EM or Asia ex China. So China's almost becoming a bit like Japan, so a standalone. What we are seeing is a lot of institutional clients are looking to diversify outside of the US. And, and you know, maybe China benefits, maybe the entire region, when I'm talking about Asia, benefits. But that's definitely that, that need to diversify. And you're also seeing, instead of over the years, that flight to quality where foreigners would take their money out of risky assets, I perceived Asian equities, you're not seeing that as much anymore because the domestic demand story is really increasing across the region. And, you know, if people are looking across the region, which stories are you guys interested in? Are you guys buying into the Japan story that seems to be really hot right now? Are you are you looking to go heavier on Southeast Asia? Are there, are there other parts of Asia that you are keen on? Well, Japan is definitely in vogue. But don't forget, a lot of the reasons why people are gravitating towards Japan is that we are seeing now true evidence of ROE coming through. So return on equity. So companies are awarding minority shareholders have been sitting on, you know, huge amounts of cash and that cash is now being distributed. I think what China is doing, especially with the state-owned enterprise reform and the evaluation mix changing, we, we are seeing some interesting yields coming out of Chinese companies. In fact, sometimes I look at some of these Chinese companies and the payouts are on par with Australian companies who are known to pay very high dividend yields. Mm. So, you know, in terms of my money, I still think China, so much has been priced in, in terms of negative news. It's, it's appealing in terms of across the board. It's, it's almost a, a problem of plenty in China. And then across the region, finding some interesting opportunities in Korea, but they're not the big cap names. They're more the smaller company names who have got very big market size positions in global niche industries. Yeah. Andrew, how about you? I mean, is it, uh, so what you, I'm a little surprised to hear that Chinese companies are paying out uh, higher dividends now. I mean, of course, Japanese companies, you've got to discount it against the, the currency, um, although there could be some upside in the end. Where, where in Asia are you looking at now? Well, I think I agree. I mean, um, you know, selectively in China, you can find good opportunities. And remember, it's still a very large, there is still a very large domestic consumption story there. Uh, it, 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 it can't be ignored. But I think a lot of people have recently rotated their money out of China into Japan, partly because they've worried that China is going to go through the same phase that Japan did of, you know, J Japanification, really, that of stagnant growth uh, and little upside. Uh, and I think possibly that's largely or, you know, connected with the, the party politics at the moment. Mm -hmm. But elsewhere, yes, I mean, I think that you're still seeing people putting their money into Korea and Taiwan selectively. But also places like Indonesia have done very well on the, again, on, on the back of consumption. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this talk about China, you know, the Japanification of China, I mean, one of the characteristics of that was zombie companies walking around for a long time. Do you, and I mean, a lot of people are looking at properties, especially, problems, especially in the property market. Do you think China has the capacity to clear out the dead wood from its, from its economy so it can, you know, have, you know, proper good old creative destruction? Well, I think one of the things is, as Catherine was saying earlier, it's that local authority debt situation needs to be repackaged if they are going to have a, an opportunity to really stimulate the economy. Uh, and the government, because it's a closed economy, has the ability to do that. Uh, it's a matter of willingness, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Catherine? Yeah, it's interesting because, again, when we saw previous cyclical recoveries with the property, property companies, uh, the private developers would act in a very particular way. So they'd be very aggressive with their property startups, funding it through the pre-sales, and it'd be just project after project after project. 
Whereas if we're now seeing a consolidation in the sector akin to, let's say, the coal sector about seven years ago or the banking sector, it will be the SOEs that really dominate the space. And SOEs or the state companies don't behave in the same way as a private developer. So that in itself is also seeing a different type of recovery that I think investors need to reset their expectations towards. Hmm, okay, that that is a lot of uh, there's a lot of gravitational uh, discussional gravitation around China today. We keep coming back to it. I do want to have a look at what's going on in the U.S. We had a rate hike freeze, um, but you know, more hikes or cuts to come. What are your guys' take on it now that we're having a little pause in the in, in the direction of the Fed? Are they are they going to some? I, I do hear a lot of people talking about you know hikes are back on uh, come July. Yes or no? Well, I mean, Powell said this, they're going to hike. But I think, I mean, this week we do get Fed speakers back and we get Powell's testimony. So those will, all those speeches will be very closely watched to try and get some sort of inside track. I'll be reading your newsletter to get the latest on it for sure. Andrew Sullivan, Catherine, what's your take? I think the U.S. managed to dodge their debt ceiling default situation, but the situation overall in the U.S., I, I kind of worry about the economy there and, and the fact that if we look at what's driving the stock market, it's predominantly a few names or a couple of sectors, one main sector, i.e. being tech, and that with the upcoming elections, and, and that could be quite messy, I think that a lot of the risk isn't priced into the U.S. And I would actually even worry about the U.S. dollar, to be frank. So, you know, again, I think that China is too cheap and the U.S. might be a little bit too expensive. Yeah, I mean, this 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 overloading, I mean, I, I you know, you always kind of know that, you know, the U.S. stock market and, and particularly the big indices are, are really heavy in some areas. But I mean, what is it? Apple is now worth more than the entire Rust 2K. I mean, it's kind of bananas. It's like ten companies, literally, that are that are that are kind of driving the indices up and down. I mean, is that is that something that people need to be more aware of or worried about? Well, I think it is because I mean, a lot of these are tech companies, and I mean, I think there's been a a, a, a review of how you value a lot of these and things like depreciation on a lot of their assets because they are are quite asset light, but it's still a risk. Certainly, I mean, we're we're all hoping that AI does well and Nvidia, AMD, these sort of stocks will do well. But I mean, the, the, the flip side of it is these companies are going to use an awful lot of power, and we're supposed to be going to green energy. So, you know, actually running these models is going to be expensive, and I'm not sure that uh, the benefits are going to keep up with the expense. Yeah, Catherine. I mean, is there, do do you have any kind of a way to protect against uh, you know? deliberately or not following these 10 big companies and in the way they drive the indices? Or do you have some kind of a way of just tempering yours and clients' expectations about where the market is going without focusing too much on them? Well, remember NVIDIA's announcement when it, you know, the market cap just was amazing in over 24 hours, but yet their sales were down 12% year on year. What? So I think, again, these companies are very important, especially with innovation, but you do get a sense there's too much euphoria attached to them. Wow. Okay, great. Well, thank you, guys. You guys, as always, are delivering the, the best of the good goods today. That's Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense, and Catherine Young, investment director at Fidelity International. Thanks to both of you for coming on the show today.